Hey everybody, welcome to T-Lifted Conversations. This is the first of potentially a new series in videos that we're going to be doing. For those of you who have seen our other content, this is going to be very different. In our other content, we're talking about T-Education. We do videos which are hopefully a little bit entertaining, but also educational, all about the world of T. But one area that really fascinates me is the ability for sitting down with T to help to engage good conversation, to sort of release yourself from tribalism, to just sit back and speak easy, if you will, and really speak openly. And hopefully through these conversations, we're going to start to build a more open, more sort of multifaceted view of the concept of truth. So I'm looking to start these conversations and I'm super happy because my first conversation is with a very, very good friend of mine, Rob Verkirk. Rob Verkirk is BSc, MSc and PhD, mostly in ecology. Is that right, uh, Rob? Ecology and sustainable agriculture and health. Really, sustainability is what's linked all of my work for the last 35, 40 years. Right. Okay. And for the past nearly 20 years, uh, Rob has been the uh, founder, executive and scientific director of the Alliance for Natural Health, ANH. You need to go check out ANH, go to check out their website. They have been working on some incredible projects. It's all around um, making sure that they promote natural and sustainable healthcare. Um, they're a non-governmental organization. Are you now a charity? We also have just established a, ch a charity, the Sustainable Health Foundation. So yes, um, we, are, we are both. So in my uh, other work outside of tea, I'm also involved in medicine. And so Rob and I have crossed paths many, many times uh, at various different uh, meetings. And I've always found conversations with Rob to be um, really, really engaging because he loves to dive into the complexity of the matter of whatever he's, he, he's researching. It's, he dives fully into the complexity and he seems to have an, a knack of uh, understanding the underlying uh, interests and motives that are happening beneath, bubbling beneath the surface of it. Um, and he's involved in many, many different projects. You can go check out ANH and you can go and see all the projects that they're working on, all really, really great projects. You've also got to check out their YouTube as well. But of course, everything at the moment, Rob, is all about COVID, SARS-CoV-2. I know that you have been spending, well, probably the last couple of months just working solidly on, on this area. Um, and I thought that what we would do today is talk about the logic of lockdown. Now, there's many other videos that we could do, many other conversations that we could have about the actual pathology of this disease and, and you know how bad this disease is compared to other uh, conditions. I also think it would be very interesting to talk about potentially in the future how we would, how we're going to change as a, as a society moving forwards. But right now, what I'd like to talk with you about is the logic of lockdown. And I'd like to sort of split it into sort of two areas, the logic of lockdown from the basis of uh, disease control. And then secondly, the logic of lockdown on the basis of whether or not it's advantageous or disadvantageous to public health and happiness. Um, and I, And before you dive in, I think it's I think you share with me that it's, it's worth saying from the very outset that just like the modeling, which is um, uh, in, uh, dictating what the government does, 
this is all speculation, right? We're, we're speculating on a very fast changing uh, uh, situation. And therefore, it's important that we put that out from the outset. And I think also, secondly, we are going to be talking about deaths and, uh, and we're going to be talking about numbers, etc. Obviously, every single death is a tragedy and causes great sadness to, to, to the loved ones and the family around uh, that person. So we, we don't mean to be flippant in any way uh, regarding that. I think it's very important that we say that from the outset. But the fact is that nearly a third of the world is in lockdown, which is insane. Right, Rob? I mean, this is a mad situation that we're in. Well, you know, John, we've been, we've been here before. Um, historically, there have been times when we have dealt with um, plague and pestilence, and we've been confined to our houses. The irony is that this only happens when you don't have tools for dealing with it. And we are so used to a world in which we have a technical or technological solution. But when something comes at you very quickly, this really came out of nowhere. Um, only a few short months ago, and um, many have been caught, many governments, many hospitals have been caught on the back foot. The primary driver for lockdown has been, we keep hearing the term, flatten the curve, mm -hmm. and of course we can talk further about that. That's really not necessarily directly about saving lives, that's mm -hmm. about not overburdening the critical care hospital care facilities. Mm. Um, and of course, it's been doing that rather well. So, you know, we, we can look back and, uh, at history and we can, um, you know, we'll try and keep this because we are drinking tea as positive as, as we can. And you, you look at what's happening in the, in the world of um, the creatives who suddenly had this continuous desire to want to create. And then we look back at William Shakespeare and you look at one of his greatest works, King Lear. Mm was written when he was in lockdown. Right. There you go. There, there, is certainly, there are certainly plenty of positives regarding lockdown that people can, uh, if they, with the right framework, with the right framing, can, can, can bring many positive things. And we're going to be talking about the positives versus the negatives. But what I'd like to focus on, I think, first is just the evidence base around lockdown, the evidence base around con uh, the, the idea of containment versus herd immunity, the idea of I mean, one thing that sort of confuses me a lot um, is everyone talks about flatten the curve, flatten the curve. But from my point of view, it seems to me, uh, so please correct me if I'm wrong, but it seems to me that the idea of lockdown and containment um, means that when you reopen, there's a, there is going to be a, a larger uh, amount of the population that have not been infected by this condition. And therefore, the likelihood of a second uh, wave, I would imagine, is extremely high. So what are your thoughts around the evidence base around lockdown? Well, look, you're, you're right, Don. The, the um, purpose of it in trying to keep people away from each other so that they reduce transmission inevitably will have an impact on the number of people that are carrying it. Now, the complicated value judgment that um, we as societies and governments have to engage with is what is the harm of just letting it run rampant? You know, on the other hand, we could have said, let's have the equivalent of smallpox parties and get this thing spread around sure. the community. Let's get the kids out there. Yeah. Um, the kids appear to be um, 
much more immune. But we're, we're dealing with um, a situation where the research community is working around the clock trying to understand just how dangerous this is. And of course, if you take the view that it is very, very dangerous, you might say, well, let's not allow a herd immunity approach to take foot. The complication for those of us who are looking at all the available data on a daily basis and assimilating and curating it, as we do in the COVID zone on our website, is that we, we really don't have the data that we need to make <clears throat> really good judgments on this. The, the denominator in particular, we really yeah. don't know the number of people out there who have already been infected. We have a, a wild west when it comes to um, looking particularly at the antibody tests. As you move into the um, a more mature phase of this pandemic, we're kind of almost more interested in antibodies, the yeah. um, immune, the, the evidence of an immune, a successful immune response in an in individual rather mm. than the antigen. So, yeah, so essentially, you know, when it comes down to it, this is a testing issue, right? Uh, we've, we're, we're, we've got numerator and denominator, okay? Denominator being the number of people that have been infected. Uh, numerator being, you know, the amount of people that have sadly passed away. And from there, we can, we can determine our, our, you know, how dangerous this actual condition is. Do we have any grasp on how wide this infection has, has, has already uh, become? Um, to be absolutely frank, um, all we have is various models that, that um, would, would suggest that the global mortality could be somewhere less than 0.01% of cases of infection um, up to, you know, 3 4%, maybe even 5%. That's such a wide, vast. I mean, how can you make decisions like that? And and that one of the one of the areas I think that I think we all um, have to, as as members of the public, start getting a bit upset about, is the areas that could have been done so much better. The coordination, not so much of vaccines, which is, if you like, stage two or three, if that's what you think is the solution. And let's remember, and perhaps that's. Um, another conversation altogether. But let's remember that the process of A, developing a vaccine is a hit and miss affair, and it does potentially carry very significant side effects, particularly because of the way that vaccines are being made using DNA recombinant <coughs> technology and looking at, you know, hypersensitizing the immune system by the addition of aluminium salts and other adjuvants, for example. So mm. it's not it's not going to be a magic cure. And as um, David Nabarro, um, you know, head of Global Health Imperial College, um, has said today, you know, he has put out the first major signal. He's been very closely involved with the World Health Organization. Um, Twelve years ago, he was the person to invite us at ANH to um, provide a detailed report on non-pharmaceutical strategies involving natural health approaches in the event that avian influenza pandemic moved to pandemic status, which it never did. Um, and he's been very close to the whole issue of vaccine development over the years and is saying, people, please be aware that the vaccine is not a dead cert by any means. It, there may not be a vaccine that is safer 
and both safe and effective. Which strikes back to the heart of the original question, because it seems to me that there's sort of two strands to this. I mean, lockdown, there is a logic for lockdown, the first being protecting the health services, which everyone can understand. You don't want to overload it with a, with a massive peak of numbers um, and it can't handle it. And more people die than necessary because of overloaded health service. But the other side to the, of, of this, it seems to me that it, it doesn't seem like there's a logical exit strategy here, because if you have lockdown, which is preventing infection, but the vaccine is going to be far down the line. And, and as you say, there's so many unknowns regarding the vaccine from, from effectiveness to safety. Do you think that the, that the governments or the people in charge have an idea of, of what they are doing? Or are they just waiting for some miraculous vaccine to come along? I, th I think there are, um, you know, there are some real complications for them in terms of uh, trying to justify the strategy. The, the, the sense that um, if, you, if you imagine the amount of the number of immunologists around the world who've been studying the interaction between respiratory viruses and the immune system, the incredible development of the science around the gut microbiome and the importance of it in immunity, the importance of vitamin D in terms of innate and adaptive immune system function. Um, you know, the irony is that we were moving into this new progression in medicine around precision medicine in which we would take these, you know, we'd be looking at genomics and um, environment, um, gene expression, and suddenly the white elephant in the room is that none of this is being discussed. Yeah, none and in of fact, it. The, the, the very fact that we should stay in our homes. Today, again, another interesting day, the vitamin D science is so overwhelming that when ministers in different governments around the world have been saying stay at home it's all very well if you have a garden but you know let's remember that a lot of this policy is coming out of the mouths of privileged people who do not understand what it's like living in a tower block or they do not understand what the circulating vitamin d levels is of someone who has a darker skin who's going to be living in an indoor environment, they can't get outside in a greatly disadvantaged situation. Mm, mm, mm. So um, the, the, all of these various um, white elephants, another issue that is um, very clear from the data is that you're seeing a strong bias towards severe respiratory disease amongst those who are carrying more weight, who are obese, who have a pattern of gene expression that pushes them in the direction of type 2 diabetes, metabolic syndrome. When people are locked in their houses, it is much more likely that they engage, as we've seen from the <clears> typical <throat> shopping habits that people have, yeah, have, yeah. have engaged in, are going to get into unhealthy eating yeah, practices. Yeah. I think we should uh, discuss the, uh, the impact of lockdown uh, socially and in terms of public health a bit later. I just am trying to get a feel from you. Um, does it make sense simply from, from a disease control point of view? For, for example, straight question, what is the likelihood? Let's, let's assume that we come out of lockdown in, I don't know, five weeks. Let's just throw a number out there, right? What is, in your view, what is the likelihood that we will uh, have a second wave of infection? 
Um, and if we do, if you do think there will be a second wave of infection, do you think it's made been made better or worse by the lockdown? Um, now that is a very deeply speculative question, and and it is a little bit like feel free to speculate into a crystal ball. We have a cup of tea, so I think I think we're we're allowed we're allowed to you speculate. Can speculate. Don't worry, um, we're not going to hold you to I, it. I I believe that um, already the process of lockdown in those countries that have locked down essentially later will pretty much guarantee successive waves of infection. That is the way the epidemiology is looking like today. One of the interesting things about, say, China and South Korea, when you look at their data, is that while many, you know, the, both the governments and, and uh, the media have tend to, tended to use this as a reinforcement for the lockdown strategy, as we understand more about the situation, it's very, really quite possible that the virus emerged somewhat earlier than the, yeah. you know, December date that we're often being given. The result is that immunity, and we're beginning to see this from some of the, the data from, from China um, and also from South Korea, was probably already much better established in the population. So in effect, the lockdown came later. So what you're saying is that there is a possibility, and it's worth stating that this is, you know, something that is, I've seen being s spoken about, um, but is by no means a, a fact uh, at the moment. But it is a possibility that China locked down too late, but they had the advantage, therefore, of gaining some sort of herd immunity in those localized areas, for example, Wuhan and those areas, and that the, the reduction in the numbers is not directly related to lockdown, but is more related to herd immunity. Is that what you're saying? Uh, what, what, what we're saying here is that um, China locked down late, um, almost serendipitously later than they would have done had they known about it earlier. And because they locked down at the time that um, case rates, and particularly fatality case rates, were already declining, mm. it was almost the perfect time. And if you do it too early before you allow sufficient uh, transmission in the community, it's very likely that particularly if, if, if some of the um, virulent strains that we've seen in Europe persist, that we'll see future waves. And of course, this will give um, governments the opportunity to say, guys, back in your houses, let's do it all over again. Right. So, uh, yeah, exactly. And then you've got the, the sort of stop start economy issue because, you know, you can't, you know, start an economy, lock it down, start an economy, lock it down. It seems to me that uh, and it, it is a sort of mindset approach, right? You either accept that this virus is here and is going to be something that we're going to have to adapt to it to and our immune system is going to have to adapt to. Or we continue to think of it as this invisible enemy that we need to fight, fight, fight. Um, and therefore, the only way to fight it, um, because whilst there are other treatment protocols being talked about, they're not really being talked about in any kind of seriousness by the people uh, in charge. Uh, you're talking specifically about vaccines and recurrent vaccines, because clearly if there are different strains, seasonal strains, you're basically mandating vaccines across the globe, you know, every single year. And that's where I can't get my head around it, is that there seems to be a sort of approach of we are beating this 
we need to stay locked down, we need to stay indoors, and we will come out of this okay. But that is just like pushing the problem further down, down the road. I think, Don, this is where it really is chipping away at this fundamental difference in worldview. Do you have a kind of globalized agenda? You know, th th there's been a lot of discussion um, since 2016 when the World Health Organization first published their first report on the disease X phenomenon. Um, you know, the, the, the bottom line, this was um, driven by concerns, of, you know, originally from the avian influenza, uh, H5N1, that didn't go to pandemic status, then swine flu in 2009. Um, this is now the one. So the, the planning, this ability to move to a very rapid globalized response, albeit one that has had many errors and problems associated, I, I think it's also absolutely shocking that they haven't been able to, to build up a, a, a really um, coordinated approach to both antigen and antibody testing um, so that we're all left in the dark. And the longer that we're left in the dark with the real numbers, the more that they can operate this you know, this, this create this fear in the population that keeps us at home. Um, now, the, the difficulty is if you want to come out of this, and we, you know, we will go on to, to look at um, exit strategies, is that you have to do it on the basis of reliable data. We, we know that the fatality rates are a messy number. We know that there is a, a lot of blurring of what is happening with um, deaths that are directly caused by COVID. And I think um, I, I certainly have seen enough papers to suggest that it absolutely does cause a horrendous and very difficult hypoxia-related death. It's, you know, you are basically dying of oxygen starvation in a very small number of people. And that requires um, a complete transformation in what, what is happening in critical care and the most successful treatments that we've seen in a critical care environment always relate back to really understanding the unique biology of this particular virus and understanding how the immune system works and very often that has included the use of um, for example antioxidants such as um, yeah, so IV. IV, IV vitamin C in, in particular. And, and of course, the medical establishment, by and large, has been very reticent to accept that some natural products could be exactly what the immune system... It does seem a bit strange, doesn't it, when, when we're, we're sort of releasing these, uh, we're creating these, these acts, these emergency acts, these basically wartime acts that are, uh, are you know, they're businesses are being told to shut down, you know, such, such extreme measures. And yet something, something as simple as testing out IV vitamin C or other methods are not being pursued. It does seem a, a very strange situation when there's clearly this sort of a emergency um, uh, approach to all these other areas. And yet, you know, things like IV vitamin C is not being administered, you know, in any big quantities uh, in, 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 in the hospitals. But more to the point, I mean, there, there are around about 400 clinical trials now for COVID-19 that are registered on the NIHclinicaltrials.gov website. 
and you'll see a smattering of trials that do involve um, vitamin C, vitamin D, for example. Um, the interesting thing, one of, one of my colleagues is, is, is really one of the world experts, Jeannie Drisco, um, Kansas State University, um, and um, she's been horrified to see that the trials that are going on in New York are being run at roughly half the dose that is really required to create this hydrogen peroxide reaction. Um, and she's written to the NIH as an NIH-funded scientist herself who's been funded to do, you know, IV vitamin C research, and they have dismissed that. So, you know, there are definitely, at a political level, you know, many of us are hearing over and over again this lockdown situation is being driven by science. It is, of course, not just being driven by science. It's being driven by um, a limited view of rather uncertain science, but there is definitely a political, economic, and social agenda that is very much part of all of this. Um, the public yeah. itself has not been asked, it has not consented this process, and this is the reason that we're beginning to see um, uprising, we're beginning to see people um, demonstrating against it, and of course the emergency powers that governments now have for the first time are starting to quash some of the fundamental civil liberties that particularly in the Western world, you know, we have worked for hundreds of years to acquire mm -hmm. these liberties, and now these are being lost. So, it, you know, m m my sense is that things are going to get messy before they get better, and, yeah. and we will potentially see this and I, I, I you know there's always there needs to be an orientation between positive and negative between bad and good and my sense is that we as a society have got itself into such deep trouble from not understanding and respecting the relationship that we as one species shares with this incredible assortment of two, three million other species, animal species alone, before you look at the plants, the microbes. And this COVID-19 phenomenon is now giving us a chance to reassess all of that, to understand that we do need to respect it, that we do need to understand that the most sophisticated system that we have to deal with it is the immune system. And yet, it's being largely disregarded as some kind of bit of junk that you don't really need to do anything about and you've got to wait until we have a technological answer and fundamentally um, we have to really understand that there may not be a technological answer here there may be a biological and an ecological answer and that's going to require um, some sophisticated changes in terms of how we as society operate. Yeah, yeah, no, I completely agree. And, and, and certainly it's an area for like extensive discussion, but let's just bring it back to the logic of lockdown as we stand now. So uh, from, if I can just summarize the sort of first part of this, <clears throat> in terms of disease control, it doesn't seem like lockdown, apart from protecting the NHS or protecting the health services, which is a key area. And certainly there's a logic behind that in terms of containment it's going to be more related to spring summer having an effect and then a, a resurgence in autumn um, and there's going to be uh, inevitable waves of infection for, for of this uh, of this uh, disease or of this virus um, until we reach herd immunity or there's some miraculous vaccine that, that pops up is that what you're saying 
In addition to that, there are also changes in the virulence. If you look at um, many viruses, this is an RNA virus, influenza viruses are, are DNA viruses that, that tend to be more plastic and mutate more, more regularly. But the seasonal flu that we get, um, you know, that some people get, um, is, is really the leftovers from the Spanish influenza um, pandemic of, of the early 20th century. Right. And and you see, uh, you know, a, a, a disease that took out six million people back then, now still knocking around, circulating. Right. Um, the, 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 if you look at the hundreds of viruses with which we share our bodies, there always comes a time during evolution that we will have new viruses entering that pool. And I think, you know, it's a, bit, it's a bit like looking at an eclipse. It doesn't happen all the time. It happens once in a while. And it's a really interesting phenomenon when it occurs. But the bottom line is it's here. It is already mutating. Um, and virulence over time is likely to reduce. And, you know, it's a combination between the intrinsic virulence and also the capacity of our immune systems to get more used to it, to actually have triggered um, antibody responses that allow right. us to be not only resistant but cross-resistant to similar strains that may evolve in time. That really moves us nicely to the second point, which is, does this make sense, this, this lockdown, in terms of specifically public health? So I think that a lot of people uh, um, erroneously think that when you're talking about like economy or opening up the economy versus human life, it's sort of crass equation. Um, first of all, I don't think it is crass because I think, it, you know, it's very important that we understand that decisions are made every single day regarding, you know, balancing, you know, uh, the ability for human flourishing and, and human well-being and human happiness versus human life. Just take a look at the speed limits, for example, right? You know, we could, we could all drive at 10 miles an hour and save many, many thousands of lives. But, you know, we choose, we make those decisions all the time. Um, I, I think it's also true to say that there's a, uh, too many people that are saying we should just open it back up again, open it back up again, because there's the idea that somehow our economy is going to revert back to three months ago. That's not going to be the case. It's going to be a different economy. So, you know, there's, this, is, this is not a simple discussion, but simply on the basis of human life versus human life, the amount of lives lost. It seems to me that when we look back at this in two years time or three years time, I really wonder if we're going to uh, think that this lockdown was a, a good idea because we talked about it before, lack of sunlight, very, very important, especially if you're going to throw people out for second wave infection after their immune system has been uh, uh, suppressed through lack of sunlight, through bad diet. I mean, I go to the supermarket and I see the fresh food uh, aisles pretty much unaffected, whereas all the dried stored, all the, the pastas and the rice and, you know, everyone seems to be carb loading or, or getting delivery of junk food or, or whatever it is. So people, I, I'm imagining there's a huge amount of, pop, uh, of the population who are staying in, not getting sunlight, eating badly. Then you've got the stress-related diseases coming from the economy. Then you've got the fact that you have no social interaction. And we know from many, many studies that, you, you, you know, you take people away from social interaction and their health suffers. Uh, plus, you're being fed this 24-7 this fear, which uh, affects your immune system in a negative way. Uh, what are your thoughts regarding the actual sort of uh, broader 
uh, view of public health regarding this lockdown? Well, Don, you've, you've said it absolutely right. All of those factors, there is a plethora of published scientific data that supports all of that. Um, fear itself, the chronic exposure to a state of anxiety, which is where many people are living, absolutely does suppress the immune system. A bad diet does. You know, the, one, of, one of the theories about why people are leaving all that fresh food in the supermarket is they're concerned about it having been touched by people's oh, really? fresh food. Yeah, so if you buy it in a packet, it's right. going to be protected. And, and, of course, there's so much more that, again, governments could be doing to help people to understand that, guys, you know, obesity is what's related to a negative outcome if you become infected. Type 2 diabetes, so, and we know very clearly that consuming real food, um, diverse range of you know, vegetables, fruits, healthy protein sources is what you need to do. And in fact, sitting there and snacking all the time is, is absolutely one of the big drivers of metabolic disease, and yet that's what people are doing. Then they're sitting in front of their televisions, being immersed with all these scary images, very little of it being put into context, very little of it providing balance. We see, we have this problem ourselves, that a huge, we've never seen anything like this in the Western world. The degree of censorship on other information that would help to balance the picture so people could get context. The very fact that on a daily basis, we could have the death rate associated with other diseases being published alongside the death rate from COVID. So people can get it into context. How big is this in relation to what happened last year? To cardiovascular year before? disease, for example. Correct, correct. But, but um, obviously, um, you know, uh, respiratory diseases and pneumonia, you know, and influenza and pneumonia are the two areas in which there is most confusion. And the interesting thing is we're seeing certainly reports um, directly from doctors who are being told to, you know, if someone died of this respiratory disease, just put it down as, as COVID. So mm -hmm. there is a, a real blurring of that data. We cannot make any decisions without information. The extraordinary situation we're in is that we're all having to either accept a decision that a, a government has made or take things into our own hands. And, you know, we've seen historically what happens when governments become heavily authoritarian um, and to see this in the context of societies that if you like have been liberalized over the last few hundred years to suddenly be switched into an authoritarian regime is a real recipe for disaster and we could be in a much worse situation if people are starved of information told what to do locked in their houses and have to also face losing loved ones and then be subjected you know pretty much the, the rest of the world has gone into you know has become paralyzed and yet so many aspects of society need to move on if we are to have a civil society after all of this so i think the social justice issues will really come to the fore but let's focus on let's focus on the public health issue just simply on the basis of whether or not this lockdown actually will save lives in the long run. We can talk about the politics, we can talk about the, the, the way that this is being used, and I think that's a very interesting discussion for us to, uh, to, to, to follow up on. But 
One of the arguments that I continuously being, uh, I hear is you need to stay at home, we need lockdown because we, that's the only way to save lives, right? But is that true? Is that really going to be, uh, you know, as I said, six months, a year down the line, are we going to look back and say, yes, this lockdown actually saved more lives than it, than it caused death? You know, how many deaths are going to be caused by the, plus you've got, you know, situations where people who have other health conditions are not getting treatments, right? You've got situations where people are going to be potentially homeless or they have no money and people who live hands to mouth, you know, the, there's going to be inevitable malnourishment. There's, there's so many other knock-on effects uh, from this lockdown. So I'm interested in, in, your, I, in your thoughts regarding how this is going to affect public health moving forward. I believe that there will be a post-mortem that we will see one day, it may be several years from now, in which it will be universally accepted that global society moved in the wrong direction to deal with this, that we will understand that actually we could have done it a different way. Now, this is just a belief I have because mm -hmm. we do not have the data, but from, from what we can begin to see of the pattern of data, what we can begin to see that um, very large numbers of people can actually handle and tolerate exposure to this virus. Only a very small proportion of people don't. So if we were really interested in saving lives, what we would say is, right, let's understand what it is about the ecology of those individuals, the genetics, the, the, the health status of those individuals that allows them to do so well even following infection and let's have a different strategy so we can shield the proportion of people that are going to be more vulnerable and let's make sure we stop them dying let's do everything we can to stop them dying if you want to save lives you have to reduce that mortality amongst the few that are highly susceptible we've not done a good job there we will it, it's, a, it's an area that we're learning about all the time um, and, and what we see today is that the people who are having the most success are not sitting around the table with governments to develop policy and those doctors should be there helping people to understand. Let's face it, if, if, if acute medicine could, you know, critical medicine, critical care could handle the problem we could all just get back to life. Let's allow this thing to circulate and move through society. It's, it's becoming very clear that the collateral damage to society is going to be huge. The bottom line is that in order to determine would it have been better to do option X, Y, and Z instead of ABC, we will never have the chance to really look at those data side by side. I believe there's a whole lot more that we could be doing right now to move towards trying to get, if you like, pseudo data of that scenario. For example, we could take City X and say, do you know what? We're going to try something really different for this city. We're seeing quite a high incidence of, of infections and we're going to try a shielding strategy. We're going to try, um, you know, let the kids go back to school strategy. We're going to try open these types of business strategy and you know we're going to you know upgrade the the number of um, antigen and antibody tests so we can actually see what we're dealing with and it will become part of an experiment in society we you know we we, we do have scientific minds 
we don't need to implement a strategy based on no information that's exactly the same around the world. You know, the, 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 the fact that um, flattening the curve is the way of, you know, protecting us with no secondary analysis of what the implications of lockdown are in terms of collateral damage to society, of economies being destroyed, people's livelihood being destroyed. Those data, anyone who's thinking about the complexity, sustainability itself is, is really the coming together of three main pillars. One is the environment, and we can consider ourselves as part of that environment. And another part is society, social um, impacts. Um, and the third one is economics. So, you know, if you want to have a sustainable society, you have to look at that dynamic between environment, society, um, and, and economics. And what lockdown does is trash all three, three of those. So if you have a model that only takes into account the impact on the ability for health services to deal with hospitalized patients, you are missing the whole wider picture. And I yeah. think that kind of lack of in-depth analysis, you know, in this place when we have so many universities and scientists who could contribute to that debate, when we have so many critical care doctors who could contribute to reducing the case rate fatality in, in ICUs and critical care facilities, none of that is being taken into account. I believe that will all slowly emerge in time. We will learn that there was a process driven by fear, driven by control, driven by power that allowed this situation to occur. And I, as far as the data that we're looking at, the, the net impacts of doing it this way um, are going to be so huge. We will never, as I said before, have the absolute comparative data where we've seen a whole world that took a different course yeah. because we've seen, and, and, and I, I do believe that's probably one of the, um, the other tricks that's um, up the sleeve of those who are making those decisions um, you know, at WHO level. Um, there is an agenda to move to a globalized um, approach to to government, um, to policy, and vaccinations are very much part of that program. Right. So, I mean, and, and again, this sort of like you start to uh, put your toes into uh, conspiracy theory waters here. John, can I stop you there? Yeah. The, the thing is that that's not conspiracy theory. That That's just fact. That, that has been very, very clearly stated by the World Health Organization. That's one of the reasons that they list um, vaccine hesitancy as one of the top 10 global health threats. Um, I went to a Politico meeting in Brussels that was the 50th anniversary of the um, Global Association of Pharmaceutical Industries that was dealing with disease prevention. I was the only person representing a, a non-government you know, campaign education information organization the whole thing was about vaccination. Um, right. So it, it's, it's very, very clear. Um, you look at Gavi, what they're doing in, in developing countries. Vaccination is a key policy in moving forward in healthcare. One of the um, other elements that's also not conspiracy theory because it's very clearly delineated in national immunize, immunization programs is that vaccine makers 
are protected essentially they they are no longer liable for any vaccine related yeah, injury yeah i heard about this yeah, yeah so that 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 is absolutely real and you know if they are making um drugs um even an antiviral drug um that is not part of um a national immunization program um they would ha they would be liable for any serious side effects that occurred and th those side effects from from conventional drugs have um you know, had a toll on the pharmaceutical industry. And it's viewed that um, particularly as we see new technologies developing, um, there are many new technologies that are being used to make vaccines. So the vaccines that are being made today, there are currently 115 different candidate vaccines that are in the pipeline. Wow, um, 115. 115 candidates. They'll be slimmed down, you know, by the time we see them being rushed into trials, um, there will be only a small number that get through um, the door. Um, but, um, you know, that, that's, that's part of the program. The, the likelihood is that the ones that come through the door will be, you know, using DNA recombinant technology where you're, you know, essentially using gene editing technologies where you're then asking a, a bacteria or a yeast cell to um, produce particular proteins that are identical to some of the proteins in the virus so that when you put those into a human body, you see uh, an immune response. What we know about those technologies is they don't work particularly well unless you basically hypersensitize the immune system. And you do that by using adjuvants. Adjuvants, um, yeah. That, that, and aluminium salts are a big part of that. And we've already seen this technology applied to Pandemrix, which was one of the vaccines developed for swine flu. Mm. And what is extraordinary about that is that we see, again, another cover-up of the amount of vaccine injury payments that have been made to young kids often who suffered severe neurological damage as a result of exposure. So this idea that the vaccine is some kind of magic solution, that it will work and it will be safe, is a big, big risk for society to take. And if we don't start to have a range of other options on the table, I believe we'll be in deep trouble. It's a fascinating uh, environment that's being created here. You talk about sort of the biological environment of the, the virus and how people can be more susceptible. It's, it sort of uh, translates to society as a whole. Like you're, we're creating this sort of uh, this, this, this environment where civil liberties are being stripped from us and we're willingly giving them away because we're so frightened. It's going to be so interesting to see how we come out of this, if we come out of this, or whether or not this is going to be the new norm, um, or whether or not people are going to push up against it. You, you see, if we, if we come out of it, we have to move away from a place of fear, because yeah. being in a permanent state of fear is no way to live. Um, so we, we, need, we need to find a way of making sure that we come out of that space. And, and coming out of that place actually is linked to sovereignty. And, and having sovereignty over our space, our locality, our bodies, is a very, very important part of people having confidence in their humanity, in who they are as people. And at the moment, the, the way in which the dynamic is pitched, we're not in that place at all. And in fact, what we've got is, is people who are snitching on their neighbors because the neighbor went out for an hour and a half rather than an hour, and they were told they could only exercise for an hour. So 
even if mandatory vaccination doesn't happen everywhere, we know it's very likely to happen in some countries and in some states in the United States, for example. The snitching mentality where you get people who become servants of the state to go and report on others will be something that's really promoted. We're seeing it already happening within social media. That kind of um, attitude is given credence in social media. You don't, you don't see any evidence that um, particular posts that relate to snitching on others are being stopped. And yet, if you try and put something even that is scientifically based, as we have found about the importance of looking after your immune system, it will be really throttled back in social media. So people don't realize that, that we're living in a world in which, um, certainly in my lifetime, I'm going to be 60 next month, this is the most extreme form of censorship that I've ever seen. I never imagined really that it would happen in the Western world in the way that it has happened. And this, I mean, COVID-19 has provided a vehicle for this. And I think we, we need to come back to that, this idea of sovereignty, of confidence in who we are, uh, having a true respect for our immune system that is such an incredibly sophisticated instrument that can handle this, that does it all the time. We, we, we don't see any celebration by governments or even by the medical establishment about what a remarkable job the human immune system is doing in 98% of cases. No celebration of that. Sure. My God, what can we learn to make other people's immune systems work better? There is censorship on this issue, and we've seen it in terms of the information that we and others are, are, are putting out. So it's a, it's a perfect environment in which um, the public has been taught that when they hear an opinion or a view, however scientific or unscientific it may be, that differs with that from authorities, it will be put in this repository of conspiracy theory. So you will dismiss um, the messengers that are calling out those particular pieces of information. And, and that's the situation, unfortunately, that has to change. Let's try to at least imagine what we could potentially do differently. Um, and, uh, you know, how would you, if you were advising government in this, what would you say in terms of, you know, other approaches, um, specifically from a sort of governmental level, and then we can talk about approaches from a sort of personal individual level? The first thing you'd need to do is massively ramp up your capacity for monitoring. So you need to be able to understand, you know, who's got the disease, positively got the disease. So you need the antigen test and you need an antibody test. I would then move to a situation where different strategies were being trialed probably within the same country. At the moment, we can't do that. We are having to rely on different models. So we, we learn from, you know, China and South Korea, two countries that have actually appear to have largely got this at least this first wave under control and we learn a lot in terms of the epidemiology of the disease in relation to lockdown and and that's one of the reasons that we can be relatively confident that um, locking down as early as we have done in Europe on the basis of what was happening particularly in Italy and Spain is probably going to cause 
multiple future waves because there is not enough herd immunity. But we have not put the resource into developing reliable tests. So the World Health Organization has just turned around and said, look, you can't rely on the tests. Well, it should be their job by now to have um, an antibody test or a series of antibody tests. See, I'm not, I'm not versed in how complicated these things are. I mean, it seems to me that it should be something that we have by now, but I don't know how complicated it is to make an antibody test. Look, it's, um, we, we've been looking at a number of antibody tests coming out from different parts of the world. Um, for example, some of the South Korean tests, um, there are eight tests that we're aware of that are produced in South Korea that were used in South Korea to understand the epidemiology so that they could take action, they could do contact tracing as well. Um, those are some of the tests that have found their way into Germany. And if you look at the German data, you'll see there's a high case rate, but there's a much, much lower fatality rate. And one of the reasons there's a high case rate is because they're testing a lot more people. Right, sure. So the, 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 the denominator is larger. Yeah, exactly. So we need to learn from the data around us. Um, you're asking, what could we do? Well, so, so monitoring, agreed, right? So better testing, better monitoring, very important. Uh, what else would you advise? So... My sense that the next strand would be what can you do to maximize the chances that the vast majority of people who have yet to become exposed to the virus or at least suffered serious um, disease as a result of it, what can they do to reduce their risk of serious disease in the event that they are exposed? Um, and if you are helping them build a more resilient immune system, if you're helping them to eat in the right way, exercise in the right way, to get out, to th this, this idea that we shouldn't go outdoors is complete lunacy in view of the information that we know about coronaviruses. They don't survive very long outdoors. Um, they survive indoors. The idea of two meters being some magical distance in an indoor environment you could be eight meters away and someone coughs and airborne particulates containing the virus particle can easily drift, particularly if there's some um, air movement caused by an air conditioning system, to infect someone on the other side of the room. So, you know, these ideas of social distancing are pretty arbitrary. And this idea of preventing people going into the parks, you know, so that they can take exercise become grounded, get into the natural environment, expose themselves to vitamin T, are utter lunacy based on what we understand about the science. If we could help people, encourage people to engage in these healthy behaviors in a responsible manner. I mean, the, the moment we're seeing sort of police being asked by their governments to go and stop people from, from gathering outdoors, when actually being outdoors is the safest place to be. Being locked indoors in a confined environment, eating unhealthy foods is the single most dangerous thing we can do. Um, and it's a stopgap measure um, that's not any part of a long-term solution. And when you don't have a long-term solution, I mean, it's one of the reasons that they have to keep telling us the vaccine is your solution. Well, yeah, it seems, but it's, it's, this is, and I guess this is the, the, this is the conspiracy theory part of it, is because of the fact that there are enough clever people out there advising the government who will know that in 98% of cases, potentially even more, right? This is 98% on the basis of data that's still coming in, but the, the likelihood it's going to be a lot higher than that. 
in the majority, vast, vast majority of the cases, the immune system is your, is your cure, right? The immune system is what's going to solve this. And advice regarding, you know, how to improve your immune system, how to, to be prepared for it, is just non-existent, as you say, in mainstream media. And this is why it creates a fertile ground for, for people thinking that there's an agenda here, because it makes everything focus on just this, this amazing vaccine that's going to come over the horizon and save us all. And of course, we all hope that there's going to be, an, uh, you know, safe vaccines developed. But it's just the focus is so narrow and so driven to this one thing. And that's why it's a fertile ground for people to think that there's an agenda here. What are your thoughts on that? Uh, Don, of course, the information is going to be coming in from a wide range of sources. What we've seen fairly consistently is that there is selectivity over that information. There is also clear censorship. This is not conspiracy theory. This is just clear censorship on the information that is getting out to the public, on things that actually could make the public really do a much better job in terms of self-caring. Self-care is, is a very, very important concept. One of the things that we know is that self-care isn't hugely liked by certain industries that you know like us to get sick and then they sell us medicines later in life. So um, it, it's, it's one of those things that is generated by communities and it's exactly that kind of sharing of information that is being curtailed. And this is why I do believe that the real solution is about us taking control. We, we have to understand that social justice that we have fought so long and hard to gain is something that is not eroded in the space of three months. We have to fight for that. You know, this is not something that any of us expected would, would happen in certainly the Western world. Um, and it's, it's a dramatic change in course for society. And it's something I think that is at least as serious as all of the other consequences associated with coronavirus. Sure. I mean, you know, this, this is the thing that, uh, that always strikes me is that this virus doesn't seem unprecedented to me. This virus seems like the, 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 you know, throughout human history, we've had to deal and adapt with viruses. This is not an unprecedented virus. The reaction to it is, seems to me to be extremely unprecedented. Um, and, uh, and, you know, from a simple life versus life equation, and that is very simple, I really question the logic of it because I think that there's further down the line, the ramifications, and it's not just economic, uh, you know, it, the ramifications for public health and happiness. Let's not forget that, you know, it's, it's not just life versus life, but it's the quality of life as well, right? It's, a, it's about, the, you know, well-being in, 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 in that big, bigger, wider sense, in that truer sense. You know, the well-being of, of, of the public um, is, uh, is, 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 whilst I understand a sort of short-term temporary lockdown to protect health services, I'm, I'm certainly not anti-lockdown per se, but it does seem to me that it's very short-sighted. And it's sort of a parallel to the way that a lot of, you know, the sort of medical approach has been in, in, in the past is sort of looking at very specific narrow uh, data and details and trying to uh, find truth through detail versus through system. And we've had many discussions about that, but it's, it seems to be this, the sort of the culmination of it uh, seems, to, seems to have manifested in this, in this COVID uh, saga. 
Yeah, I, you know, I, th I think it is. It's reductionism versus holism. It is also reductionism when you don't have your technological solution. The misrepresentation that's been occurring over the last few months around COVID-19 is that science is deemed to be that tiny little portion of epidemiology based on a few mathematical models and limited or very uncertain data when there's all this other science that's already out there about what we need, how we interact, the very fact that our exposure to pathogens is part of the process of developing and maturing our immune systems. It happens from time to time. Like I said earlier, it's like an, an eclipse. It's a natural occurrence and it can be a bit messy earlier on, but we adapt to it and we come out of it more resilient. And if you take away the very fabric of the things that make us supposedly civilized beings, you've got nothing. You've got nothing mm. anymore. And that's where I think it's beginning to happen. You're starting to see it, you know, over the last two weeks even. We're starting to see a level of consciousness that's not about um, um, having to take on governments and shut them down and everything else. It's about coming to an understanding of, of what we can do instead of what we have been doing, changing our approach to life. I believe that this may be, we will look back on it, our children and our children's children will look back on it. That was one of those pivotal moments in which we actually started to do things better. And we've got two choices. We can either decide that we're going to just live permanently under this authoritarian regime that will lock us in our houses and take away our freedoms, or we'll move to a more mature, sophisticated model of what being human is all about, where we're more conscious, where we understand the value of, of, of our neighbors and our friends and our communities, and we will become more sovereign. And, um, and that's why I believe, you know, right at the heart of finding a solution here. It's about understanding what we can do to help ourselves and help each other. If we're not being given that information from governments, we will share it amongst ourselves. We're already all finding ways of, of doing that. Well, I think I can't, uh, I couldn't have said it better myself. I think that, that you know, it, this is a good place to, for us to to leave the discussion. Obviously, this discussion was always going to be open-ended because there's, there's plenty more information coming in, plenty more that we can talk about. Uh, you know, I think the key, as you said, is, is adapt, don't fight, um, and less fear, more positivity. And, you know, focusing, I guess, on understanding uh, that this is a very, uh, like you say, a, 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 such a pivotal time to make very fundamental choices in the way that you're going to approach your life and uh, and uh, and how you're going to move forwards after the inevitable release of this lockdown. Thank you so much, Rob, for, for joining me on this. Thank you uh, for everybody watching. Um, if you like these kinds of discussions and you want to hear more from Rob or you want uh, um, other discussions regarding uh, coronavirus, then please do let us know in the comments section below. Make sure that you check out uh, ANH and all the work that they're doing and uh, go visit their YouTube as well. Uh, give them a subscribe. They're putting out some really, really interesting content as well. Thank you so much, Rob. It was a pleasure as always and uh, and I'll see you I'll see you for our next cup of tea later on look forward to it Don thank you so much for having me on take care bye